Romans chapter number one, and today's message is called Not Ashamed of the Gospel, and I'm keying in on verse number 16. Um, it is a one well-known evangelical said that many Christians think about evangelism like they think about flossing. Now, I'm not going to ask how many people floss here. We have a dentist in our midst, and he'll be taking names. But, um, but you know, they think about it like they do flossing. What, what do I mean? What I mean is that they, they should do it more often, and they even feel guilty when they're reminded of it, but they think of flossing as an optional discipline. Some of you go so far as to think that brushing's an optional discipline. It's not, really. But, um, but that kind of idea that, that evangelism is an optional uh, discipline is completely antithetical to the Bible, and it's even antithetical to the gospel itself. The fact of the matter is evangelism is necessary, and it's of prime importance. That is why we are left here on earth. The word gospel, by the way, what does it mean? We learned this when we were going through the Advent sermons. The word gospel means good news. We have the greatest news in the world, and we should want to proclaim it from the rooftops. Jesus told a parable that linked the the kingdom of heaven to a great wedding banquet. After the original invitation went out, which in the parable itself is talking about the house of Israel, they, they ignored it. They rejected the invitation to the wedding banquet. And the servants were told to go out into the main streets and the, the side streets and invite everybody they could to return with them to the feast. And the surprise guests were welcomed to this huge, giant party. In uh, Luke chapter 15, Jesus told a series of, of lost stories. You remember those? There was a, there was a lost coin, and there was a, um, there was a, a lost um, prod, a sheep, and then there was a prodigal son. And all three stories end with a party. If you look at those, all three of them end with a party. And they illustrate the fact that in heaven there is great rejoicing over one sinner who repents. And it is illustrating the fact that when we get to heaven, those who believe in Jesus Christ, we are going into what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, a a permanent wedding banquet of sorts. All these scenes end with food, feasts, celebrations, and parties to describe God's response to people coming to saving faith. And if we look at evangelism as dental floss, we have missed the point in a bigger way than we can even realize. God, think about this, God entrusts the Christian with a divine duty. And that divine duty is to spread the invitation of the eternal celebration of God's redeeming love. That's what we're doing. Isn't that wonderful? That's wonderful news. And so what I want to do today is just talk about two things. Why evangelize? And we're going to look at it theologically. And then I want to just give you some ideas on how to to boost or or become a better evangelist today. Why should we evangelize? Well, there are some compelling reasons. Number one, God compels us. There is a reason why John 3.16 is such a beloved text of Scripture. Everybody knows it, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, 
And whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a beloved text of scripture. Because the first four chapters of John's gospel pictures a world that lies in darkness and wickedness. And then it pictures God's love as a great love. And God's love is great, not because the world is so large, but because the people who dwell in it are so bad. And God calls his people to be co-lovers of the world with him. And in so doing, extend the love of God who have, to those who have not experienced it in a saving manner. For God so loved the world. And so you can substitute your name in there. For I love the world because God loved the world that I want to go tell the world about God's love. I want to tell the world about God's impending judgment on those who do not believe, God's hatred of sin, and I want to tell the world that Christ came to earth to die on the cross and pay for those sins so that we can go for all of eternity and celebrate that love together in heaven. So God's love compels us from John 3.16. We see this. Um, our theology of evangelism contains the belief that God has chosen to save a great multitude of people for himself. Now, not everyone here agrees on how to express. I'm going to use a word. Don't get triggered by it. Ready? Election. The word election is in the Bible. Now, not everybody here agrees how that doctrine, how the Bible teaches about election. But we can agree that God cho chose a great multitude of people to come to himself. But we can agree on this, Ephesians 1.4, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And the result of this election is that a great multitude will be saved. When you go to the book of Revelation in the future, in, in chapter 5, verse number 11, there's pictured around the throne, it says, myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands of people are gathered around the throne, and that is God's divine purpose. And if you're here today and you are saved, it's because God ordained to save you and you'll be one of those myriads of myriads. Isn't that great? All around our country right now at this very hour, mainly on the East Coast, eventually to the West Coast, there are people who are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though we're in different locations, we're worshiping the Lord together. Even though we have different theologies, we're worshiping the same Lord. Even though we interpret texts a little bit differently, God saved them just like he saved us. Isn't that wonderful? I, I've often talked about this, but I'll say this here. And I'm actually a little bit off my sermon text a little bit, but you'll, you'll forgive me. When I go to conferences and I see, the, uh, I see the difference of the people in the conferences. I, I, I go to this one conference, that, well, the Gospel Coalition, we saw that announcement. You go to their annual conference, you'll see, or semi-annual conference, you'll see Anglicans there, and you'll see Baptists there, and you'll see some Pentecostals there, and you'll see Methodists there, and you'll see all these different kinds of denominations and people. And, and I just look around, and I think, looking at these people, all these people think they are right. And I'm sitting there thinking they're wrong. <laughs> but here's where I go with this. You ready? 
Don't we serve a wonderful God that he can save all these people with all these different beliefs and all of them are wrong in some way about God? Isn't he a patient, wonderful, loving, kind God? We, we serve an amazing God. And so God, um, we, God's love compels us. So when we think about evangelism, we realize that we are about the task of calling to salvation all of those whom the Lord has known before the foundation of the world. That's what the Bible says. He knew us before the foundation of the world. It was this truth that compelled the father of modern missions, William Carey, to labor for seven years before he saw a single convert in India. Why did he do this? He did it because he was under the conviction and knowledge that God had some of his own in India and they needed to hear the gospel and get saved. Election ought not to be a debate point. It ought to be an, a, a central feature in our theology of, of evangelism. And even though it might function somewhat differently depending upon how you interpret election, we ought to spend more time preaching the gospel than to the chosen than debating it on social media or in the coffee shop. Am I hitting right where people... That, that, should be, that should be a resounding amen. The doctrine of election, no matter how you believe it, should not be a point of division. It should be a point of unification because the Bible uses the word election and the elect gets saved. We know that. Whether, how you believe they're elect, it doesn't matter. It ought to unify us in our evangelism of the lost. It's a wonderful thing. So God compels us to evangelize, but secondly... People compel us to evangelize as well. Evangelism also demands an understanding of the spiritual state of those whom we evangelize. Lost people need forgiveness of sins, and their only hope is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what the problem with lost people are? This is profound. This is the most profound thing I'm going to say all day. You ready? Lost people don't know they're lost. Now, you and I know we're lost. Well, men don't know they're lost. The wives know. (laughs) But we normally know when we're lost. Men don't like to admit to it, but we know as well. I do think it's ironic the way men are that GPS voices are women. (laughs) But we won't go into that. Lost people don't realize they're lost. They don't know they're in peril. Some might recognize that they have problems. So they might employ some sort of self-help or some sort of moral improvement, but it falls out empty. I read an article this weekend about the failure of the minimalist movement. I don't know if anybody saw that. It's completely empty. And I didn't realize this, um, uh, that there's a, the minimalist movement is a, a self-fulfillment movement. And the idea is the, the, the people who promote that is that you can become fulfilled if you become a minimalist. And, and um, there's a, a complete failure in that movement. And so lost people, they turn to uh, self-help. They turn to moral improvement. They turn to minimalism or whatever else to try to solve their problems. But um, the problem is that they need 
something different. They need transportation, transformation. The gospel makes it clear that all these efforts are useless. The greatest of all evangelistic texts says this, and you know it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Everybody knows that text, don't we? And we must take the, we must make disciples. We must tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And most often, this, this happens uh, with a gospel encounter, a resultant experience of repentance and faith. The theology of evangelism must emphasize a conversion experience. There are a lot of people who are converted who don't remember exactly when they were converted, right? But everybody has a conversion experience. Uh, when I was in Pound, we, we had quite a number of people who came from the Catholic Church to into our ch um, church, and they were converted. And a number of them said that they, don't, they couldn't pinpoint when they were converted. They just took on those beliefs. What, what they meant was that there was not a point when they got on their knees and said, Lord, I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I'm repenting of their sins. They just did it as they learned the gospel. And there are others who have a very definitive conversion experience, right? Uh, that, was, that was mine. That was mine. Uh, I've told you my testimony before, how that I was out late at a party, and was just under conviction. I was afraid I was going to die before I got home from the party. That was the Holy Spirit's conviction. And that night I prayed, Lord, if I'm not saved, show me tomorrow morning. And, and of course, um, uh, the Lord showed me no uncertain terms. I was not a believer. And that, that morning I prayed to, to uh, repentance of my sins and faith in Jesus Christ. And there was an immediate change of heart in my life. And so some of you gradually take it on and are converted. Others of you, there's a definitive point in time, but everybody has to have a conversion. If they're saved today, there was a time when their, their disciple, they were made a disciple. And so God compels us, people compel us, and the task compels us. What do I mean by that? What is the primary means of evangelism? What's the primary means? Door knocking, handing out tracts, big open rallies. That's not what I'm talking about, actually. What I'm saying is this. What the question I'm asking is, the primary means of evangelism is the gospel. Notice what Paul said in Romans 10. How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And now how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. Good news, the gospel. And so the primary means of evangelism is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's scripture. Um, the, the hymn, 
Notice the word him in there, to believe in him whom they have never heard. The him is the one who was anticipated in the Old Testament, who appeared in the Gospels, is explained in the epistles, and will appear in glory as we see in the book of Revelation. It's none other than Jesus Christ. And so proclaiming the word of God in the gospel is the greatest task that we can involve ourselves in. We, we like to to rank our importance by looking at what kind of a job we have or what kind of position that we have in society. And, and these things are all false and they're all wrong. Our position is made by who we are in Jesus Christ. And we have been tasked with the most important job in the whole world, and that is to preach the gospel to people who need it. And everybody needs the gospel. Many of you, well, let me just see. How many here have been saved 50 years? Raise your hand if you've been saved. Man, okay, that's a, that's a good number. Y'all are sitting mainly over here. <laughs> There's a few over here. But think about that, 50 years. Okay, everybody just raised their hand who said they've been saved 50 years. Can I tell you something? You need the gospel preached to you every single day. It's gospel is not just for lost people. It's for God's saints as well. And so we preach the gospel. Now my primary teaching text, text today is Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is the power that brings lost people to Christ. So many today seek to win people by means of entertainment, by resorting only to rhetorical or emotional appeals without a gospel or without a, a biblical content. But God has promised to use Scripture to dissect the thoughts and intentions of the heart, thereby change our lives, not entertainment, not emotion, con emotional contentless messages. Dear believer, you may feel that the way you present the gospel is powerless. Can I tell you that if you give people God's scripture, he promises that it is that scripture that changes hearts, not your delivery, not your winsome personality. It's not the church's music. It's not the entertainment factor of the pastor that stands up there and preaches. It's not how funny he can be, how smooth his talk is, and how many emotional devices he uses. The fact of the matter is, people's hearts are changed when the Word of God is applied to their lives. It cuts right to the very inward parts of their being, and they are changed. And they are one to the Lord. And we're in the process of being changed every single day. That's why I preached to you last week to be in the Word of God. Now let me ask you, what is today? The fifth, right? Five days in, have you been reading your Bible in this new year? Read your Bible. It changes lives. God promises that the gospel is his awesome power. Eternity compels us as well. One day, the Lord will come back, and time as we know it will end. All humanity will be swept into eternity. 
This fact compels us to share the gospel as much and as widely as possible. G.I. Packer, in his excellent book, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, addresses the questions of how, how, how do we know? Here's, here's what he's asking in the book. I love the book. It's a real thin book. How do we know that we're actually doing evangelism. And one of the ways that people, the churches I came out of, you're being an evangelist when you have converts. And that's not what J.I. Packer said. He said this. He said, the, w- the way to tell whether in fact you are evangelizing is not to ask whether conversions are known to have resulted from your witness. It is to ask whether you are faithfully making known the gospel message. Dear believer in Jesus Christ, your evangelism is simply making known the gospel message. That's what it's about. That's what it is. God does the rest. He does the heavy lifting. He cuts to the heart. He shows people their need of salvation. And what is the gospel message? What is the gospel message? Jesus died to save sinners, shedding his blood on the cross as our sacrifice, as our substitute. And what is the response to the gospel message? repentance and faith. And these are the reasons for evangelism. I want to end by being very practical and asking this question, how can we increase our evangelism? Now, in, in a couple of weeks when I get back, we're going to get back into 1 Corinthians. One of the reasons that I'm preaching a, a topical message today is that I believe that this is an area that we can all improve in individually and corporately. And we're working on some plans for 2020 on how to increase that. But I want to ask you as an individual, how can you increase your evangelism telling the good news? Well, number one, pray for believers by name. Pray for believers by name. Do you know um, one of the greatest joys I have is praying for the lost? praying for lost people, praying for the people that I know. It's not enough to pray for the the lost multitudes. We don't know these people personally. We can pray for the lost people in India, but we don't know them personally. But you know Joe who lives next door. And you know Sarah, your relative. And you know the parents of the kids in your school who are unsaved. And you can pray for them by name. Make it a point to pray for the ones you know. In fact, the ones who need the Lord. Uh, Heather and I were talking about this very thing earlier this week. There are so many people to pray to be converted. I would encourage you to write their names down and make it a point to pray for them weekly. Heather's praying for her doctors and nurses, and I'm praying for them, and I'm praying for people that I know that are, that are lost, the so people that I worked with on the fire department rescue squad, and all these different things. Pray for people by name to be saved. You know why you want to do that? Because if you're praying for them by name to be saved, when you see them, it's going to trigger in your mind, you know what, I need to work the gospel in. The, the girl that cuts my hair, 
Um, don't judge how good a job she does by my haircuts. But, um, but I pray for her constantly to be saved. And, and I, um, I weave the gospel into conversations as often as I can. I don't browbeat her with it. But it's just little things such as, you know, I am so thankful for my church because the love that God showed for me, the way Christ sacrificed for me, is the way church sacrifices for one another. It's those little things, weaving the gospel in the conversations that is so important. Pray for unbelievers by name. Number two, be intentional in pursuing relationships with unbelievers. If you don't make engagement with unbelieving people a priority, your life will gravitate automatically toward the pleasures and comforts of a church community. Am I right? That's absolutely true. These people you have more in common with than the people who enjoy the same hobbies and the same occupation as you do. Why? Because you are a brother and sister in Christ. You have a common ancestor, right? And so it's very easy for us to gravitate only towards those who are believers. Look for people outside the Christian community that you enjoy spending time with or you would enjoy spending time with. People who are much more likely to respond to the gospel message when they know you. And if you don't know any lost people uh, in, in any kind of a deep manner, how can, you, how can you be an effective witness to them? Now, I, I, do, I do different kinds of evangelism. I will talk to people I don't know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I've found over the years that for me, the most effective means of prevent, presenting the gospel is presenting it to somebody I've developed a relationship with and I'm, I'm friends with and they know I genuinely care for them and, and sometimes even love them. And, and so it be intentional in pursuing relationships with unbelievers. Don't build a wall. Don't, don't, don't build a cloistered community of, of the frozen chosen or whatever else you want to say. Okay? Number three, love your neighbors. Know your neighbors. Help your neighbors. Enjoy your neighbors. Practice hospitality. Give them a pie. Give them cookies. Invite them over for a cookout. You see them working in the yard, go over and help them out a little bit. Get to know your neighbors, know their kids, know their job, and, and, and love your neighbors. Make your home a place that your neighbors associate with their love for each other. Know your neighbors. Don't, you know, American culture, I was talking to somebody about this, and you, some of you are old enough to see this. Think about the dramatic change in culture. I was talking about this with my son-in-law who was here. Um, um, and uh, it's a generational thing. Th this is interesting to me. I was reading um, on, a, on a forum, actually. And it was, okay, I'll, I'll admit, I'm an aviation geek. It was a pilot's forum, okay? And there were older pilots and younger pilots. And, and one of the guys, older guys, was complaining about all the stores getting self-checkout and, um, and how much they hate the self-checkout thing. And then these young, <laughs> yeah, I'm about, you're about to get labeled here. Just hold on, okay? <laughs> and then the younger guys piped up, the 20s and 30s, and said, I 
love to self-checkout because I don't want to talk to anybody if I don't want to have to. It's a generational thing. Our, genera- our society has gone from people sitting on their front porch talking to one another to as soon as you get home, you hit the clicker, the remote control opens the garage door, you drive into your castle, close the door, walk in, and you don't want anybody coming to your front door. That's a, that's a massive cultural change that's happened in our society. And so we have to be intentional about getting to, don't be a pest, by the way, <laughs> but get to know your neighbors and love your neighbors. Have I said enough about that? Okay, let's move on. Number four, be involved in your children's activities. Families are extremely busy running their children to activities, but sitting at practice is a great time to befriend people and to establish relationships. You know, practices, I don't know how long practices are nowadays, an hour or two hours, something like that. Grab somebody, say, hey, let's go grab a cup of coffee or something. And get to know the parents of your children and be involved in their activities, whether it's volunteering at the school or whatever else, volunteer to coach. But do something so that you're not in a Christian bubble and get your children out of that Christian bubble as well. Okay, I'm not trying to be offensive. Get your children out of a Christian bubble. Get them mixing it up with people who are unbelievers and have different ideas of what life is like than you. Allow your children to join programs outside of the Christian-only programs. And then number five, get involved in hobbies and community. When, when we moved to Pound, Wisconsin, one of the things I realized very quickly is that all my contacts were in the church. I didn't know anybody outside of church. I, up there, I lived in a parsonage. The parsonage is on a church property. I walked um, 50 yards to my office. That was my commute. And so, therefore, I could see saved people. In the, in the, I think my secretary was saved. And, and save people all day long, walk home to a saved family, have meetings with saved people, and never, never see lost people. So I thought, well, I've got to do something about this. And opportunity came up for me to join the fire department. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to join the fire department. And I'll tell you this. I had one motivation for joining the fire department. That was to tell people about Jesus Christ. And then the opportunity came up to, to join the rescue squad. And so between the fire department and the rescue squad, that ended up being about 60 people that I consistently had contact with. If you're, if you're on the fire department or you're on a rescue squad, volunteer, I'm, I'm thinking mainly, uh, there's a camaraderie that develops, isn't there? When, when you have something difficult and you can talk about it and things like that, and through that camaraderie, um, I had an opportunity to be a consistent witness to 60 people. Several of the people I witnessed to multiple, multitudinous times. A couple families came to Christ. A few more people than that came to Christ. That was a real blessing. But I was able to share the gospel with people. Now, that took me about a year to two years to, to find my niche. And I'm going to be honest with you, I haven't found it here yet. But I will. Now, let me ask you this. Where's your niche? What hobby? What activity? What community event are you involved in that can help you share the gospel with people who need it. We are put here. God, you realize that God could have, he, he, he could have just made it this way to where as soon as you get saved, you get taken up to heaven. 
Couldn't he have done that? And he could have used angels or some other means to, to allow people to get saved. But what he did in his divine sovereign plan is determine that it's the proclaiming of the gospel from human lips by which people get saved. And so therefore, you are left here to evangelize the lost. My prayer is that you do that. I'm going to say one more thing, too, about evangelism, and then we're done. One of the joys that I have is sharing the gospel. When I share the gospel with somebody, um, I'm going to be honest with you, the vast majority of them, it doesn't make any difference in their lives. None. I never see any change. As a matter of fact, sometimes I even see boredom. But do you know I always walk away from that with joy? I've always got a little bounce in my step. I've always got a little bit more happiness. Why? Because I got to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. There's a joy in evangelism, even if uh, you don't see a convert. Our job is not to get converts. Our job is to tell the good news. Anybody can do it. If you're saved, you can do it. If you know the gospel, you can do it. And there's no excuses. We have tracks out out to the left, by the way, in in the the, uh, lobby as well. But I would encourage you, share the gospel, evangelize the lost, and allow God to do his work in people's hearts. Lord, I thank you for the joy of the gospel. I thank you for the good news. I thank you, Lord, that you have entrusted us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we pray, Lord, that the, um, that the congregation, that the individuals here will uh, be uh, motivated and compelled by who you are and their love for the world and, and the, the gospel of Jesus Christ itself to, to tell people about salvation. And Lord, I pray that you'll be pleased with the evangelism of Providence Bible Church in Christ's name. Amen.